Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you so much for your word. We turn our attention fully to your word now, and we recognize that your word is alive, and your word is able to do things in our lives that we cannot anticipate. So in these next few moments, use these words, use the content of our hearts, use all that we are to bring glory to yourself, especially through Christ your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, kids, it's time for you to head out. You can meet Ken right back there by the preschool room. Y'all are going to go on a little adventure, so have fun. It is so good to see all of you here on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, It feels like summertime, although we all know the rains are coming, right? Like, it's just going to happen. One of my favorite, favorite treats from the summers, growing up as a kid in Texas, is something called Bluebell ice cream. How many of you have ever had Bluebell ice cream? Okay, great. The Medawars just got back from Houston. They know all about Bluebell. Bluebell is a gift from Jesus because Jesus loves us. Uh, One of my memories as a kid is going over to my grandparents' house, and they had these individual cups of this ice cream, you know, like just like the little bitty ones that are kid size. And so, of course, uh, we would take those cups. They were either vanilla or chocolate, and we would squeeze as much chocolate syrup as would fit into the cup without totally overflowing it, and then just eat as much of it as we could and mix it up, and it was probably like 90% chocolate syrup anyways, but it was still great. So Bluebell is one of my favorite things. If any of you can figure out a way to get Bluebell to Washington, come talk to me. A few years ago, uh, Bluebell did make some headlines for a not-so-great purpose or not-so-great update. They had a problem with one of their plants in Oklahoma, and there was a bacteria in their ice cream. So this glorious, wonderful thing was contaminated, and some people got sick, and actually a couple of people died. So if you're in food, if you're in that industry, that is the worst possible thing that could happen to you as a business. And it nearly knocked Bluebell out, like they were almost gone. And it was all because one of their factories just wasn't completely clean, like wasn't as squeaky clean as it could have been. And all of a sudden, the wonderful thing that is Bluebell ice cream is now sort of suspect. Like Phil mentioned, we've been studying Song of Solomon for the last couple weeks, and for many people in our community, not everybody, but for many people, this particular book is just heavy, heavy laden, in part because a lot of the subject matter deals with something that's difficult and complicated for all of us, and that's sexual intimacy. A lot of it is just the way the church has approached Song of Solomon. There's actually a period of time in church history long ago when the book was uh, not supposed to be read if you can imagine that, that there were councils of the church that said, skip that one. Like, don't read that part of the scriptures. Like, okay, whatever. In a way, Song of Solomon kind of becomes like Bluebell ice cream. It at least frames that for us in a particular way. What I mean by that is this. If sex is good as God intended it, then ice cream is good. But if it's contaminated, if it's broken apart, if there's a part of it that just isn't supposed to be there, if there's a toxicity to it, then the teaching of the church oftentimes has been just stay away from it. Like, don't get near it. Don't get near sex. Don't talk about it. Don't lift it up as beautiful as God intended it. Just don't touch it. Kind of like you would want to do with something that might make you sick. And so we've kind of missed completely the vision and the beauty that God intended that he reveals through this incredible series of love poems, which is at least part of the way we're interpreting Song of Solomon, is that it's a series of poems about the beauty of love that comes primarily through the lens of love with God, love and relationship with God, but there's also a way to look at it through the lens of relationships between people. Now, today's uh, chapter is uh, one of the saucier ones. I would give it an R rating. So every week we've been talking in terms of parents and kids, like, hey, PG-13, PG, R. This week's R. 
So, if you guys want to talk to your kids about R-rated stuff, go for it. Peace be the journey. We're actually going to look at some of the saucy stuff, and we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10 of chapter 4. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles or fire up your Bible app, you're welcome to look there right now. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the back table always, which you're welcome to take. And we're going to highlight 7 through 10 because it teaches us something about the heart. And in ancient Hebrew culture, the heart was both the integration of the interior life, the stuff that runs around sort of internally, what you process in your mind, what you feel in your gut, and your emotions. That's the heart in terms of the Hebrew understanding of it. And what I think our text teaches us is really simple, but maybe profound. And that is that our hearts make things. Your heart is like a Bluebell ice cream factory. It's supposed to make good stuff. It's supposed to make good widgets and good gadgets and things that come out of you, like Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we do as a result of what's inside our hearts is supposed to be good. But our hearts are sometimes like that factory in Oklahoma where there's contamination, where there are things that are not supposed to be there. There are things that God never intended to be there. And so the things that our heart produces, we need to look at carefully and go, is this the way God wants it or is this some messed up version of that that I've created? Our hearts make stuff. And so today we're going to try to look backwards in the assembly line and go, okay, where are these things being made that can be really good, really good for my family, really good for my coworkers, good for my neighbors, and how do we get there? And I think the text has a lot to teach us about that. So if you look in your bulletin, there are three different headings, three different gadgets, if you will, that we're going to look at the heart producing today. The first one is beauty, and I want to clarify this. Our hearts don't make beauty, only God makes beauty, but our hearts assign beauty to things. We can apply the value of beauty to something when our hearts are aligned with what God wants. So beauty is the first thing that we make or that we're a part of making. The second thing is identity. Our hearts actually manufacture, create our identity. And we know through Jesus Christ, his identity is the one that we want, and that is God's beloved son, God's beloved daughter, in whom God is well pleased. That's the identity piece. And then the third thing is this ravishing love that kind of comes at the end of our passage today. That's the thing that our hearts long to put together, sort of the magnum opus of what the factory is capable of making. But we can't get there on our own. But we know the one who can get us there. So uh, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10, but I want to read for us, and I invite you to hear this reading of verses 1 through 7. Saucy stuff. You ready? It's going to get a little warm. Okay. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. This is, as we've been talking about in Song of Solomon, three different characters, the woman who's kind of the heroine, the shepherd who's her true love, and then the king who's not the nice guy. This is the man speaking of the woman. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not Not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in courses. On it hang a thousand buckles, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that feed among the lilies until the day breeds. And the shadows flee, I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Okay, what's going on? First of all, let's remember, love poetry, right? So we're not reading this just like, 
here's the script, here's what's said, here's how it moves together, here's the plot. Remember, it's an allegory that we can apply both to our relationships with one another and our relationship with God. So what's happening? Does anybody speak Arabic in the room? Anybody speak Arabic? Okay, I thought that'd be really cool if somebody did. There's an Arabic term that actually describes what this section I just read for us is. It is a type of Arabic poetry, ancient Near Eastern poetry, called a wasf, W-A-S-F, not W-A-S-P, wasf. It's a poetic form in which a woman and a man express their love for each other. So, of course, as I'm studying this week, I started thinking of Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash singing Jackson to one another, right? It's like that. Part of the wedding ceremony in ancient Arabic-speaking cultures would have involved a poem like this. A poem memorializing the beauty of the bride would have been read as part of the wedding ceremony. I don't know about you, but I've never been to a wedding ceremony where that happens. But I kind of like that. I think that's a great way to celebrate the beauty and the majesty of that day. Song of Solomon contains four different sections that fit this poetic form, this wasp, this back and forth, and one of them happens to be in our text today. This kind of poetry is especially marked by using natural descriptions to connect a person to something beautiful in God's creation. And this poem makes, assigns beauty to a person. This is where the heart is involved. This is part of what one of the commentaries I read this week said. The text is not simply describing the woman's appearance, but rather, more importantly, it's describing how the man sees her, what he sees with his eyes. It's a way of saying that there's an imputed beauty. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but it's seen not only when he gazes upon her, but when he reflects on her beauty in the context of creation. Creation is one of the ways that he tells this woman, I see you this way. I see your eyes and they look like this. I see all of your body and it looks like this. And he uses God's creation to describe it. Here's a couple of thoughts about what this means. It means that this love poem has deep roots in its form and its content. That's important for us to know. It means the Song of Solomon applies to real life because this is used in real weddings. Like people actually say these things to one another. And it means, in my opinion, that if we go back to one of our terms for love from a couple of weeks ago, we get a deeper understanding of the first point in those terms. So I'll ask Ian to put this slide up on the screen of the pyramid that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. There's three different primary Hebrew words for love. Many of you were here for this, and I'll just do a quick recap. Throughout Song of Solomon, there are three different Hebrew words, and they're all interrelated to one another. As one form of love is developed at the bottom of the pyramid, the next form of love becomes available, and then the next form of love. They are intertwined. You can have one of these forms of love and not have to move to the next stage. It's not like sliding down a hill, but they're related to one another. So we have raya, ahava, and dod. Raya, if you remember, is companionship. People who get into love with one another and share sexual intimacy with one another, they start with just liking each other. Like, they just like being around one another. When we see the word love here in the text in verse 7, that's raya. That's companionship. That's a term of endearment. I like being around you. This is good to be together. People who love each other deeply start with raya. Then they move to ahava, which is intimate friendship, and then they move to dod, which is sexual intimacy. Again, you don't got to go all the way up this scale, but this is how God designed us to move forward in intimacy with those whom he calls us to love. Dode will come up again in verse 10, so kind of keep your ears out for that. And the point I want to make by mentioning all this, by bringing this up, is twofold. One, every one of us has experienced brokenness in this pyramid. 
We have experienced brokenness when we've tried to reach out to someone in companionship and we've been rejected. We've experienced brokenness when we've tried to say to somebody, I want to share this kind of really deep, heavy part of my life with you, kind of in the ahava stage, and they've used that against us. Or they've told it broadly. We've even experienced at the very top of the pyramid, Dode, sharing sexual intimacy outside the context of marriage. It's like napalm. It's destructive. We know this. But this is the world that we live in. And the way God designed things is for this to work. But every one of us has to be willing to admit that we've experienced brokenness at some level in this pyramid. And we bring that to the table. It's like the listeria and the bluebell ice cream. That brokenness comes from us. It comes from our hearts. The second point I want to make is that raya comes before dode. Companionship comes before you get to any of the glorious sexual imagery that's used in Song of Solomon. You have to experience companionship enjoying the person you're with before you can get to that stage. And as we've talked about throughout Song of Solomon, anytime we talk about sexual intimacy, the scriptures have no other paradigm for experiencing it than in the context of marriage. That's where it happens because the covenant that marriage creates can actually hold the power and the potency of that sexual intimacy. So the slide can come down. Go back with me to the poem. Verse 7 is really interesting. We talked about how verses 1 through 7 are kind of this... Uh, ancient uh, Arabic form of poetry, a wasp. In verse 7, he summarizes basically what he's been saying in verses 1 through 6. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Other translations say, you are totally beautiful, my darling. You have no blemish. Well, that begs the question, what do we mean when we say the word beautiful? In Hebrew, the word beautiful is yafeh, which is a really interesting word. We see it a couple of times in the Old Testament, and it's always really complicated. Beauty always complicates things, and the Old Testament bears witness to that. First, the word comes up in relationship with Abraham and Sarah. Remember their journey? They're called by God to go to a place that they have not known. They come to Egypt, and the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, notices something about Sarah. What? She is beautiful. And Abraham affirms that. He says, well, yes, my wife is beautiful. And then he realizes what the king's putting together, and he goes, uh-oh, this is not good. <laughs> I have no power. The king has power. What am I going to do? Beauty leads to a crisis for Abraham and Sarah. And that's in Genesis 12, both in verse 10 and verse 14. She's referred to as beautiful. Yafeh is an equal opportunity word. It refers to both women and men. So there can be a place, there is a place in the scriptures where it's used to describe someone who's a man who is beautiful, and that's Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, verse 6. Same word comes up when the boss's wife notices Joseph and says, mm-hmm, that's beautiful. She says, or she thinks to herself, this man is handsome, this man is beautiful. The point I want to make is that in both cases, the hearts of the people involved around beauty are making something. Remember, our hearts are like factories. They're making stuff. What's being made in each of these examples? The stuff that's being made leads to some pretty bad decisions. For Abraham, Sarah's beauty becomes a place of insecurity and fear. That's what his heart is manufacturing. I've got to protect this. I've got to figure out a way to get around this. What does he do? He lies to Pharaoh to try to protect her. And it allows his heart to kind of make things like greed and possessiveness, and a continual thirst for power. That's what it creates in him. In Joseph's case, when the boss's wife tries to take advantage of him, Joseph runs away, but he still gets thrown in jail. He's trapped by this effect that his beauty creates on this woman. Her heart manufactured lust and objectification and coercion, and those things do not lead to life. 
they lead to the breakdown of life. This is why we can safely hold statements like follow your heart and go, well, that's complicated. I would not want to just bless that statement of follow your heart and just say, yeah, go do that whenever. Our culture loves that. But these examples, I think, prove to us that what our hearts manufacture isn't always trustworthy. And so we need to be cautious around that, especially when it comes to beauty. So if we're not going to follow our hearts, if we're going to be cautious around beauty, if we know we make toxic stuff, what do we do? Like, what fills the void there? If I can't follow my heart, what should I follow? Let's talk about the one who made our hearts. After his death and his resurrection, there's a story about Jesus taking a long walk with two disciples. If you're familiar with this text, it's the Road to Emmaus story. You can find it in Luke 24, and I'd encourage you to read it on your own time. I love this story because this is the story of the gospel. This is the story of walking in faith with Jesus Christ because we don't know the destination. We know that Jesus is with us. That's enough. And when we're on the journey with him, he's continually revealing stuff to us and changing us and transforming us. And so the story goes that after Jesus has walked with these disciples for a little while, he takes leave of them. He just goes. He disappears. We don't know how it works. And I picture these two poor guys standing there in the middle of the desert, kind of blinking their eyes, scratching their heads, And then that great line comes up where they say, wow, were not our hearts burning within us when he was with us? When our hearts are burning in the companionship of Jesus Christ, that can replace the nonsense of follow your heart. Because the one we want to follow with our hearts is there. And the road to Emmaus is a great example of how Jesus actually does that. That's the effect that Jesus has on our hearts. Not overnight, not in a moment. This is not microwave discipleship. We are literally aflame with desire for this raya kind of love, this companionship. And so here's how we can apply this very simply to our lives. Maybe you want to write this down. Go where Jesus is going. Go where he is going. If Jesus defines beauty for us, if he says the homeless person, the person experiencing homeless, that they are beautiful in the sight of God, we go where he is going toward that person. If he says, the children of that school that your kids don't even go to, but that school is struggling, I need you to be there. They are beautiful. They are made in my image. We go where he is going. This is why things that we do together as a church are so beautiful when they're focused outside of our walls. When we had Serve Day just a couple of weeks ago in May, we were blessing and serving people who are elderly, people who are experiencing homelessness, kids who are going to go to summer camp and have a great time, That's why those things are beautiful, because those are the things that Jesus values. We are going where Jesus is going when we go to those places. Women's retreat, men's Malibu, those are actually more beautiful than a summer day in Seattle, because Jesus has made them, and we are going where he is going. Are you going where he is going? Are you on the path with him? Have you seen his work in your life? Have you felt that burning in your heart? If so, good, keep it up. If not, who could you be around that could encourage you to follow that path, to go where he is going? Jesus makes our hearts want things and manufacture things, make things that are beautiful because he knows when to assign beauty to things that are truly deserving of it. And he doesn't get swayed by situations. He doesn't get tempted by things. He comes and he is with us. So my encouragement is go where he is going. Let the burning in your heart lead to him. So that's verse 7. That's kind of our beginning thought. Now let's talk about verse 8, which is leaving Lebanon. When we move ahead in the text to verse 8, I actually found it helpful to read from the message. So Ian's going to put this up on the screen for us, and I'm going to read this. This is a paraphrase of the text in front of you. 
Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Leave Lebanon behind and come. Leave your high mountain hideaway. Abandon your wilderness seclusion where you keep company with lions and panthers guard your safety. Okay, big reminder here. We're reading a poem. She's not literally living with wild animals. Like, that would be really cool, kind of a Beastmaster type thing. This is a poem. Poetry, illustrative of a larger point. Descriptive language. But there are elements of reality in the text that we should pay attention to. First, Lebanon. Country just to Israel's north on the map, right? Shares a border with the Mediterranean Sea. In the NRSV, the translation that I use, this section, verse 8, includes references to some actual places, some mountains. The peak of Amana, Sinir, and Mount Hermon. Those mountains are not literally the places where this woman has been running around. She would have had to run around to a whole bunch of different, very remote locations to do that. But it's meant to illustrate the distance that the man feels from her. It's meant to illustrate how far apart she feels from him in this moment. Why? Maybe they've had a fight. Maybe they've had to move apart for some reason. Maybe their families have kept them apart. We don't know. It's an expression of love in the context of raya, of companionship. I just want to be around you, and you're like, you're like running around the mountains. I can't be near you. He's doing something that's really, really hard for men to do. He's actually asking for something. He's asking for something that he needs. I need your companionship. I need you with me. It's hard for men to admit to do this because we don't like being vulnerable. We don't like admitting that we're better when we have our, our person, our spouse next to us, but it's true. And he's doing something that's a good model for us to say, I need you with me. I need you with me. She's far away from him, so what does he do? He invites her to leave where she is and come to him. Very, very, want to be very careful around the language here. He invites her to come and be with him. He does not command her. This is not a dictatorial relationship. What do we do with the phrases mountain hideaway and wilderness seclusion? The temptation is to cheapen that and to say like, oh, she's playing hard to get. You know, this is a flirtatious thing. No, it's not. She is not dropping a handkerchief here or scattering some rose petals over there. The truth of this exists in how we view her character through the relationship that she poetically has with these wild creatures. She is like the company she keeps. She runs with fierce company. She's powerful, she's strong, she's able to hold her own, she can survive in a hostile environment, and her territory, as it were, is not something that she can just simply be whisked away from at a moment's notice. This is a strong, capable woman, and the shepherd who is pursuing her, who really loves her with a sacrificial covenant love, respects her and professes his love and need for her without trying to manipulate her. How remarkable is that? He's not selling her something. He's not trying to convince her of how great he is. Her identity is being formed by a heart that wants the right things. So what do we do about this? I want to consider the invitation at the very beginning of the verse. Leave Lebanon behind. Leave this far-off country behind. What's he asking her to do? Just use your imagination for just a minute. Is he asking her to leave her comfort and her safety? To leave a place of familiarity? To follow the calling to be with the one that she truly loves, even though it will cost her something? He's encouraging her to let her identity kind of be made over by the desire to be together. And this can happen to any of us in a really beautiful way when we know that Jesus Christ is part of that conversation. This feels like an opportunity for two kinds of reflection. If you're a follower of Jesus, ask yourself, has he asked you to leave Lebanon? 
has he asked you to leave something really comfortable, really like, man, I know where my stuff is. I know what's going on. I got this job figured out. I got my neighborhood figured out. I'm good. If Jesus came and asked you to leave that, would you? What would it require of you to sacrifice to follow him to Lebanon? Is it time for a new adventure? This can be a joyful thing. Maybe you've had someone knocking on your door to go and take a risk with them, to start a new company, to jump into a new venture. What if that's Jesus beckoning you out of Lebanon? It may not be, but what if it is? Is your identity, is your personhood in Christ really and truly secure wherever he has called you, or is it just where he's called you in your comfort? That's a tricky question to ask. The great thing about holding these questions out before Jesus Christ is he is always trustworthy. He will never let us down when we ask him, where do you want me to go? Do you want me to leave Lebanon? Do you want me to leave this place where I've secluded myself? Are you calling me into community? We can trust him with the answer to that question. The other kind of reflection I want to encourage is this. If you're not a person of faith, if you you kind of figuring Jesus out, you're not sure about him, or if you're connected to people who are, it may be time to, and I ask this with respect, to ask the question, who is helping to chart your pathway? Who are the voices that you integrate into your decision-making and you go, I'm going to listen to this person, I'm not going to listen to this person, this person helps me go this way. Who helps inform your decision-making? And is that a trustworthy source? Is your identity being formed by the things that are good? Or is it just whatever's easiest to grab? Are the sources that you rely upon, and this is true for any of us, are they reliable? From what wells will we draw the water of identity? If you're a Christ follower, you know the answer to that question. And if you're not a Christ follower, (laughs) Christians do not get this straight every time. (laughs) Jesus gets it straight. We do not. And so we are continually striving after him. And why is his identity trustworthy? Very briefly, because of who he is and who God revealed him to be. The moment of Jesus' baptism is one of my favorite moments in all of scriptures because the heavens part, God looks down on him, and what are these wonderful words that are spoken? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't you know that that gave Jesus the most secure foundation for his ministry, for his calling, for his identity? Because he never had to doubt the father's love for him. He never had to doubt his calling. Because he knew, like we can know when we follow Jesus Christ, that we are secure in that love. That's where his identity leaves us in the best possible place. So, that's identity. Now let's look at the final section of our text, once again, from the message. I'll ask Ian to put this on the screen. You've captured my heart, dear friend. You've looked at me, and I fell in love. One look my way, and I was hopelessly in love. How beautiful your love, dear, dear friend. Far more pleasing than a fine, rare wine. Your fragrance more exotic than select spices. This will be helpful to kind of hold in our minds as we consider the word ravish. Ravish comes up here in the text in verse 9. Eugene Peterson, who translates this, kind of expands it, and he says, hopelessly in love. The message captures some of that poetic language, and ravish is a Hebrew word that has the same root as the word heart, lava. It's the same word. It is a capturing of the heart, of the interior life, like we learned about earlier, thoughts and emotions and things that move us. And what the heart is making here and longing for, and you see it right in the middle of the passage, how beautiful your love, that is dode, that is the deepest kind of intimacy, the deepest kind of freedom that we can experience. The man is sharing with the woman that he is all in. 
He is utterly united in his pursuit of her. His commitment is set. It's so set, in fact, that his outer world aligns with what his inner world is like. Soren Kierkegaard has a great line, purity of heart is to will one thing. This man is pursuing this woman with a purity of heart. He just wants one thing. He wants to be with her. So does God desire to be with us. And even as I say that just now, I don't fully grasp the depth of that. I don't know if any of us can. That the depth of God's love for us, that the purity of his heart is to will the good for each of us, to want us to follow him, to want us to be ravished and so celebrated and so blessed by his love that we want nothing else. That is just an incredible picture to me and one that I'll spend my lifetime trying to grasp. The man wants to love this woman with his whole life lined up to that end. And this is where Song of Solomon kind of becomes a helpful analogy to the life of faith. Do we desire that? And if we do, do we make space in our lives to want that? I'm learning that I just cannot begin my day doing stuff. I mean, I'm like groggy as all get out when I wake up, so I really need coffee. (laughs) But I cannot begin my day with a cup of coffee on my laptop. That's a recipe for disaster. Why? Because I haven't started my heart with the alignment that I know can come when I just sit with God for a few minutes, or when I just open up my Bible and read a couple Psalms, or when I journal, or when I do any of these things I've talked to you guys about that are meaningful to me. You don't have to do it the way that I do it. But I can't open up my laptop to start my day. It's too much. It becomes too overwhelming and too distracting. I need to start where my heart is reminded, where my heart is aligned. Like Kierkegaard said, that purity of heart. I can't get there just by starting my day with work or by starting my day with whatever. I need to start it just sitting at the Savior's feet. I need those building blocks to contribute to the rest of the day. If you follow Jesus Christ for a long time, you know that this accumulation of time spent with him, it produces stuff in our life. It's like tweaking the mechanism for what our hearts produce. If our hearts are making things, spending time with Christ helps align it with what he wants. And that produces the best stuff out of our hearts. So, the ravishing love of God. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. It doesn't happen like a lightning bolt. It happens over time. And just like that pyramid that we looked at at the beginning, it is built steadily over a process of companionship with Christ. So I want to finish our time together by asking just a couple of reflective questions. You're welcome to write these down. You're welcome to put aside your bulletin and just sort of hold these thoughts in your mind. Open your hands if you'd like. Have you given thought to what your heart is making? What's the stuff that is being made in your heart? If you're a parent, what kind of stuff are your kids' hearts making? What do you see in the manufacture? Maybe you've come to the place like I did a couple of weeks ago where I was so frustrated by what my heart was making that I just needed to do something about it. I was telling a friend of mine that I was frustrated about this continual feeling that I have of just missing stuff, just being behind the ball, not being able to catch up. And a mentor of mine said, okay, what are you going to do about it? And I had to think about it for a little while. And for me, and this is a commitment I'm going to try to make moving forward, I'm going to give an hour or two a month to just sit there by the lake and think, to just open up that time to God speaking, to be able to process, to be able to glean some vision from what he wants. I'm just going to go to the lake and think because I'm tired of what my heart was making. It was making anxiety. It was making fear. It was making a doubt in my own sense of calling. I didn't like what my heart was making. So what I'm going to do about it is I'm going to go think. 
And for me, that's a pathway forward. If you don't like what your heart is making, what are you going to do about it? If you don't like what one of your kids' hearts is making, what are you going to do about it? This is not antithetical to the gospel because the gospel isn't just lay there and take it. The gospel is get up and go. Be involved in this manufacturing, this stuff that happens in the heart. Care about it. Invest in it. And trust that the one who actually has the power to make and shape our hearts has the power to show you and me the pathway to the life that he desires for us, where our hearts can truly be at rest. I'm going to invite the band to come join me back up here again. And as I do, I want to remind us that it is beyond our power to do this on our own. Only Jesus Christ gives us the power to come and worship him and be with him and receive this peace, receive this ravishing love. And so this Memorial Day weekend and the week ahead and the summer ahead, I hope you'll consider God's calling to that and how he is equipping you even now, even by hearing this word just now, to go and be a people whose hearts are united, aligned around that one thing, that purity of pursuit that only he brings. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you that it speaks to all aspects of life. And now we ask that through the continued reflecting on your word, through music and through prayer, that you would reveal your desires to us. Check those parts of our hearts where we are making things that are not good. Move us into your future. 